0: Hi, I'm Christopher Ward, and welcome back to Whatever It Takes, the podcast, an introduction to the audiobook version of Stephen Stone's memoir, a book that he describes as life lessons from Degrassi and elsewhere in the world of music and television. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, you might like to tell your friends, and maybe buy the full Whatever It Takes book, which is available in print, ebook, and audiobook formats at your favorite bookstore or digital platform. Over the course of this podcast, we've heard some stories about Degrassi, some stories about some great musicians, and maybe learned some tricks about success. But Stephen, for this podcast, we are turning the tables, and it's going to be all about you. We're going to play two excerpts from the book. The first is from the very beginning of your career, and the second from more current days. The first, I confess, is probably my favorite in the book. Now, it shows you in a humbling light, shall we say? but I think it's really, really funny.
1: Well, yes. Uh, Funny, but totally embarrassing and humiliating (laughs) in so many ways. But very funny to those that were around me at the time. Like me.
0: You were in law school at the time, and the lawyer you were working for in your spare time found it the most amusing of all. Then in the second excerpt, we jump ahead a good 40 years or so, and you have so many things to reflect on as you prepare to address the graduating class of our alma mater, Trent University, as you were being awarded an honorary doctorate. This seems like quite a daunting task to me. Did you start by recalling where you were in life at the age of most of the students?
1: Well, certainly. I thought back very fondly to those days of yesteryear, when you and I were playing music in the Trent Folk Club Mm -hmm. and founded the university radio station along with some other stalwarts. But mostly, I thought it would be a good time to say some words about authenticity and goal setting, but in a quite different context. I tried to think about what they would all have in common, looking ahead from their graduation, one of life's most significant events. To make ends meet after the Killing Ground disaster, I got a job working part-time in George Miller's law office. A tall, rumpled lawyer who smoked too much, George could easily have been on the front cover of a vintage Saturday Evening Post magazine as Norman Rockwell's version of the kindly country practitioner. He was, in fact, a successful urban lawyer with a varied practice, including entertainment law. The year was 1974 before photocopiers had been popularized. In order to make multiple copies of legal documents, secretaries would insert several sheets of paper into a manual typewriter. Electric typewriters were not yet in wide use either, with sheets of carbon paper in between. The skill of a typist who could churn out a perfect page was highly valued. I wasn't a typist myself, but I was a good proofreader and could help by checking the typist's work and by sorting and filing their documents. George had higher ambitions for me. You should apply to law school, he said. After some considerable remonstrations on my part, I did exactly as he suggested. When my application to University of Toronto Law School was accepted a year later, George congratulated me heartily and agreed that I could continue working in his law office while going to school, but on one condition. Stever, you must promise me that law school comes first. If I ever ask you to do something and it conflicts with your studies, just let me know so that we can make sure that law school always comes first. I'm sure George meant it when he said that. Or did he? It was 8.30 a.m. on a cold, rainy day in November of my first year in law school. There was a paper I needed to write, a class I needed to attend, I had to grab some stuff from the office, pop on the subway, and be back to the law school by 9 a.m. The conversation started with George saying, Stever, I need a quick something, and it continued. Stephen, George, remember that conversation we had? I've got to pull out the card now. I've got to write this paper, prepare for exams, do all this stuff. I have to exercise the law school always comes first card. George, good for you, Stever. Now, here's a briefcase, and inside is everything you need. Just go to courtroom 14B in Old City Hall and adjourn a case for me. Stephen, George, I just can't. I'm playing the card. George, there is no card. You're going to court. I can't go, and you have to appear in courtroom 14B. Stephen, I've never been in court. What do I do? George, it'll all work out. Just tell them you're a student and you don't know what you're doing. Just adjourn it. It was very upsetting. I walked along, trying to get to the subway, and it was raining. I opened the briefcase, and there was only one thing inside, a little green slip. The slip said, Accused. Frank Drew. Crime. Assault with a dangerous weapon causing grievous bodily harm. This was a real criminal case. I started hyperventilating. I didn't know the client. I didn't know anything whatsoever about the case. All I had was this little green paper claiming that on such-and-such a date, he attacked such-and-such a person, causing grievous bodily harm. This guy could go up the river for five or even 15 years. As I made my way to Old City Hall, I memorized what I'd say, running through it over and over. You know how when you get really stressed, you need something to hang on to? Well, what I hung on to was, If it pleases, Your Honor, my name is Stephen Stone. I'm a student with the law firm of Miller & Charlton, who are acting for the accused in this matter, Mr. Frank Drew. My principal, George Miller, is unavailable to attend this morning, but he asked if we could please adjourn this matter to another day. I kept practicing that in my mind, thinking at the same time, if I'm really lucky, it'll be on first thing, and I can salvage the rest of this godforsaken morning. Old City Hall was jammed with people, people who knew what they were doing. The place bustled with clerks, judges, police officers, and ordinary citizens. I found courtroom 14B and saw the list outside the door. Hallelujah. Right up near the top was the name Frank Drew. So I turned around and called his name up and down the corridor. Again and again I called, but he wasn't there. It was 9 a.m., and I was getting increasingly agitated. Things quieted down inside the courtroom, and a bailiff came outside and chanted, Frank Drew, Frank Drew, looking for the accused. At that moment, this guy came rushing up, and I yelled, Frank? He said, yes. And I replied, I'm Stephen. We were just in time. I grabbed him by the arm, and we went to stand in front of the court. The judge nodded to me, and I started. If it pleases, Your Honor, my name is Stephen Stone. I'm a student with the law firm of Miller and Charlton who are acting for the accused in this matter, Mr. Frank Drew. I was about to continue asking for the adjournment, my hand resting confidently on Frank's shoulder when he said, I'm not Frank Drew. My life flashed before me. All I could think of was contempt of court. I'd seemingly tried to impersonate an accused or some such thing. Whatever it was, it was bad. I managed to garble out something along the lines of, What my colleague meant to say was, Mr. Drew has been delayed this morning. We were hoping for an adjournment. The judge obviously knew I was in trouble and said something like, we'll put this matter down until later this morning, and hopefully Mr. Drew will be in attendance by that time. We went outside, and I found a payphone to call George and say, George, you don't understand. This is horrible. I've gone before a judge. I had the wrong client. He roared with laughter. I was so angry with him that at that moment I hated George Miller. No, you're staying right there, he told me, amid guffaws of laughter. George, be reasonable. There is no client. Frank Drew is not here, I said. At that moment, the door to Old City Hall opened, and a guy came in, old and unkempt-looking, but haloed in the light. Are you Frank Drew, I asked? Yes. We sat down, and I explained that I was a mere student, not a lawyer. How I didn't know anything about the case. How I was a peon. There would already been a mix-up, and we had to go in and adjourn the case to another day when George was available. Frank smiled and responded simply, No, there's no way we're adjourning the case. We're fighting it today. This was not good. Over and over, I tried talking sense into Frank. We had a few hours to kill. As a result of the mix-up, we were at the bottom of the morning's list, and I tried to use the time to point out to Frank how important it was that he have a real lawyer represent him. We got to know each other a bit over those few hours. Frank starting to tell me a bit about himself. He obviously had a weak bladder as he kept going to the restroom, and I used one of those restroom exits to call George. He's insisting on going forward with the case today, You have to come down here. George just said, don't listen to him. You're going to adjourn the case. Easy for George to say. This just made me red in the face. George was safely back at the office, not here on the front lines. When Frank came back, we got into more conversation. But as we were talking, it slowly dawned on me that Frank didn't have a weak bladder at all. He was slurring his words, getting drunker and drunker. He'd been going to the restroom to drink, as he then admitted, a mickey of rye. I became even more upset, thinking how before even becoming a lawyer, I was probably guilty of so many different forms of contempt of court. Suddenly, it became all about me, 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 and how my career was going to be over. I explained to Frank, you have no idea how this is affecting me. Frank just put his hand confidently on my shoulder and said, don't worry, Stephen. I've been through this many times. He paused and looked me in the eye. Here's what you do. Understand this will work. Whatever they say, put your feet together, your hands behind your back, look down and don't say anything. Just be really, really humble. Um, that's really not going to work here, I replied. So, Frank was an interesting guy. It turned out the dangerous weapon that had caused such grievous bodily harm was in fact a broom handle that had delivered a black eye and a swollen arm. Particularly as he drank more, he became more loquacious, but he also started making less sense. And as his words washed over me, I started to realize I did have control over my own life. And it didn't matter what Frank said. My job was to go in there and ask for an adjournment. And that was exactly what I was going to do, no matter what. Finally, it was 12.30 p.m., time for the last case of the morning. Frank drew, Frank drew, the bailiff chanted. I was propping Frank up a little bit as we entered the courtroom. He wasn't falling down, but was trying to walk very purposefully to prove he wasn't drunk, which was delusional. The moment arrived. If there were drums in the court, the drums would have rolled. If it pleases, Your Honor, my name is Stephen Stone. I'm a student with... The judge interrupted. We know who you are, Mr. Stone. Who is your client this time? There was laughter in the court. I was so petrified, I blanked completely. The jig was up. The judge had my number, and I had no idea what to say or do. There were probably so many protocols, so many different proper ways to proceed, but I had nothing. The single thought that suddenly came through my mind in that moment of blackness were those experienced words of Frank Drew himself from only an hour or so earlier. So I put my feet together, put my arms behind my back, and I looked down and tried to be really, really humble. There was a long pause. I knew I was supposed to answer the question, that I had to do or say something but I was rooted in complete inaction and humbleness until I became aware that someone else had started speaking, someone who knew what he was doing. It was the Crown Attorney saying, Your Honor, our witnesses have failed to appear this morning, and with Your Honor's consent, we'd like to withdraw the charges against Mr. Drew. Somehow I managed to recover my voice enough to croak. That would be acceptable to the defense, Your Honor. So Frank and I walked out of the courtroom together. Both free men. As we got to the door, Frank threw his arms around me and cried, My lawyer. I've never been back in a courtroom since, and I never will. Many of the dreams set nearly 50 years ago in Europe and Turkey during Christopher's and my travels, and certainly many of the real goals behind those dreams, have come to fruition, though not always in the ways we had originally intended. I had the chance to reflect on this when I was asked to give an address to the graduating students at Trent University, and this is what I had to say in its entirety. Mr. Chancellor, Mr. President, Mr. Mayor, members of the graduating class, faculty, family, and friends. I'm told it is traditional in a convocation address for someone like me, of advanced years and supposed advanced wisdom, to pass along a nugget of inspiration to assist you on the road ahead. Often this inspiration consists of some variation on the theme, follow your heart, follow your dream. But I don't actually think that is quite the best way to go. Let me explain. I was fortunate enough to be a student here at Trent nearly 50 years ago, at a time when many of its institutions were still being created. So it was up to the relatively small group of us to found and establish the first guiding principles for a series of important extracurricular activities, such as the student government, including the balance between university-wide and individual college governance the student newspaper Arthur, Trent Radio, and the Folk Club, and other music and social institutions, while at the same time earning a degree. As it was for me in the 1960s, I have come to realize that the degree being conferred upon you today is not just a degree. It is a confirmation of a life and learning experience that is unique. Many other students will be graduating this month from various colleges and universities elsewhere in Canada and around the world. But the degree you are receiving today is unique because Trent University is unique. Trent embodies, as it has since the early days, a multidisciplinary approach, what we called back in my days a Renaissance approach to learning. That is, the encouragement of different thinking patterns evolving from a variety of different areas of study and of extracurricular activities. In the former regard, I majored in a combination of philosophy and economics, two disparate fields whose language and thought patterns are in many ways polar opposite. But combined together in the unique Trent sauce, These subjects turned out to be an incomparable foundation for a career as a lawyer, an entertainer, and a producer. Now let us return to my proposed nugget of wisdom, a nugget that is, I suggest, particularly appropriate for those like yourselves who have spent time embraced in the Trent University Renaissance mode of thinking. I said before that the theme of convocation addresses is often a variation of follow your heart, follow your dream. But my exhortation today is not to follow your dream, but rather to know your dream. Know your dream, for following a dream that you only partially understand creates obstacles and frustrations. And the unique learning that you have experienced over your months and years here at Trent gives you a special ability to engage in more varied processes of authentic introspection, sometimes parallel, sometimes conflicting processes, to unlock the layers of self-deception to which we are all prone, and to discover what your real dream is. I have no doubt that your real dream is not what you initially thought it might be. For when we ask ourselves, why? What is behind my thinking? I would like to have a certain trait, or to be free of a certain perceived problem, or to engage in a particular career or lifestyle or relationship. When we ask ourselves why, we start discovering that what we initially thought was a dream is often merely a means to an end. And it is the end we must discover. It is the end that is the real dream. I was lucky enough to discover the kernel, the starting seed of my real dream, at 4.30 p.m. on September 7, 1964. I was attending my very first rock concert at the old Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. And before the main act came on, there were several warm-up acts that played two or three songs each, with the house lights still up. Back in those days, there weren't the huge stacks of sound equipment and arrays of guitars and drums on stage that we're used to now. I remember each group had their own logos on their drum kits, names like Brenda Holloway, the King Curtis Band, and Cannibal and the Headhunters. They'd play their two or three songs, and then roadies would quickly switch the equipment, and the next warm-up act would race on. Near the end was a group called Sounds Incorporated, who had an international hit at the time. They sang their three songs and then left the stage. Their equipment remained, so we figured they would come back to do another few songs, but they didn't come back. It seemed like 15 or 20 minutes went by with nothing happening. The crowd was getting more and more restive and started chanting almost to the point of anger and frustration. Then every light in Maple Leaf Gardens went out. Total blackness. The entire crowd screamed in pandemonium and suddenly a single spotlight shot onto the Sounds Incorporated drum kit. A roadie raced across the stage and ripped off the front of their bass drum to reveal a new name, the Beatles, and the four lads ran out on stage. We heard almost nothing after that, with all the screaming that accompanied their show. That afternoon, I knew what my dream was. I was destined to be a rock star. Well, of course, that was what I thought my dream was. Over my years at Trent and beyond, I realized more and more that what I really wanted was to work with talented and creative people, helping projects move forward, particularly projects that impacted people's lives positively. As I delved further, I started to realize that for my dreams to be worthwhile, I'd have to be healthy and have the respect and trust of loved ones. And I came to realize how many other aspects of personal, physical, emotional, and career health were vital to what I wanted in life and must become part of the dream. And so, over time, my real dream started to become evident in a very vivid and detailed way. And while my initial dream never did come true, I am happy to say that the real one is very much happening. And indeed, part of it is culminating here and now on this podium. So I encourage each of you to engage in ongoing self questioning to find your dream. And when you think you have found it, to keep asking, Why is this my dream? What is behind my thinking this is my dream? Until at last you truly find your authentic, real dream. And once you know what that dream is, you won't need exhortations to follow it. You'll likely find that you are already a substantial way down the path toward achieving it. So that is what I leave you with today. Know your dream. Know your dream, and you will be that much closer to realizing it. In closing, I would like to now further applaud and congratulate each of you, on your many accomplishments that are being specifically memorialized here today. And in that regard, may I be so bold as to speak as one of, and on behalf of, all the Trent students who have graduated before you, and in so doing, to welcome you into the special ranks known as Trent University alumni. From all of us, we applaud all of you. We congratulate you. And we wish you every good fortune on your road ahead. This concludes this episode of Whatever It Takes, the podcast, which
0: has been produced by Elizabeth Baird and featured Stephen Stone along with yours truly, Christopher Ward. If you enjoyed the podcast, you might like to tell your friends and perhaps buy the full Whatever It Takes book, which is available in print, ebook, and audiobook formats at your favorite bookstore or digital platform. We'll be back with a new episode next week.